Hey everyone, it's Hannah. I wanted to thank you for listening to these stories over the last few weeks, and I hope you have enjoyed them. This will be the last episode where I read from Ed Gooding's book, but if you would like more content in the meantime, please check out the link to our Patreon in the show notes. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. November 19, 1959, at 7.35 a.m., 48-year-old Wilma Selby arrived at her home on 4307 Devion in the fashionable Houston suburb of Afton Oaks. Entering her house through the back door, she walked through the kitchen and the den. Just as she entered the hallway, a man suddenly stepped out and pointed a pistol straight at her. Two shots rang out in rapid succession, striking Wilma in the center of her chest. The bullets landed less than a quarter inch apart. She fell dead under a framed scroll bearing these words. Bless this home, O Lord, we pray, and make it safe by night and day. Before this case came to its conclusion, it took more twists and turns than a snake. Houston citizens and newspapers put overwhelming pressure on the police to bring the killer to justice. Private citizens even put up a reward. In the end, we were successful. By we, I mean all the local police officers. The Houston Police Department's investigation was headed by Captain Weldon Waycott. He did not hesitate calling in Sheriff Buster Kearns, Harris County Sheriff's Department, and the Rangers. This was a strange case from the beginning. Joseph Selby, a 51-year-old certified public accountant, had arrived home shortly after his wife that fatal evening. According to Selby, when he had seen his wife lying on the hallway floor, he bent over and called her name. Getting no response, he had rushed to his next-door neighbor, G.E. Turbeville, crying that someone had killed Mama, but they meant to kill me. Selby and the Turbevilles had rushed over and found Wilma still lying in the hallway. Mr. Turbeville later stated that he had first thought she had fainted. After that, Selby called his son John, who lived only a short distance away. John then called an ambulance and the family physician, Dr. George Gataura. He said that his mother was hurt. He didn't know she had actually been shot and that the doctor was needed immediately. It was over an hour before Dr. Gatara had arrived, and it was only then that young Selby called the homicide office. Detectives C.M. Leonard and J.O. Brannon arrived at the Selby home and began their investigation. They were soon joined by two other Houston detectives, B.S. Baker and Neil Todd. Little did Baker and Todd realize that this murder case would almost take over their lives for the next several months. After the case was solved, one of the detectives told me that Joseph Selby's performance during their questioning that night was deserving of an Academy Award. They said you would have had to see it to believe it. He cried and wailed and moaned and could not be consoled. But I'm getting ahead of myself. That was still in the future. For now, many questions and clues immediately faced the officers. The main mystery was why they hadn't called earlier. John Selby had said that he thought the ambulance company would call the police after he had called them. I don't know why he thought this. When the ambulance company had been called, no mention was made of a death or possible foul play, and there seemed to be no need for the police. Even though the bullets had not passed completely through Wilma's body, it was obvious that she had been shot at very close range. Yet the weapon had been fired far enough away to leave no powder burns. Later, the autopsy would show that the bullet tracks were almost identical. 
This was only possible if the shots had been struck in extremely rapid succession. Still at the crime scene, further investigation revealed that the house had not been forcibly entered. Either the killer or killers were already in the house when Wilma entered, or, and this was very unlikely, the killer followed her in. The possibility of the house not being locked didn't cause any extra concern or surprise. Today, it is unthinkable that anyone would go off and leave the house unlocked, but it was common practice in the 1950s and 1960s. At first, it was naturally assumed that Wilma had come into the house unexpectedly and surprised the intruder. The trespasser had then panicked, shot Wilma, and then fled the scene. But that theory was weak. Almost $700 was found in Mrs. Selby's purse. In her bedroom, less than 10 feet away, was her undisturbed jewelry box that contained several thousands of dollars in valuable gems. Right beside her body was a mink coat that she had just picked up from storage. In fact, nothing in the house had been disturbed, and Wilma had not been assaulted. Outside the home, footprints were found near a window, and a garden hose was cut into several pieces. Neither of these clues led anywhere. As is customary with this type of crime, a family member is always a prime suspect. The husband, Joseph, was no exception, but he wasn't a strong suspect. He was a certified public accountant, fairly well-to-do financially, and wouldn't gain much with his wife's death. He voluntarily went with detectives Brannon and Leonard to their office. For several hours, he was questioned by Houston homicide detective Weldon Waycott, District Attorney Dan Walton, and members of both men's staffs. During the whole time, Selby was extremely cooperative and had an answer for everything. In time, however, we would see that he had too many pat answers. Selby was asked what he meant when he rushed into the Tupperville home, saying that they had killed Mama, but they meant to kill him. He had answered that a man had been calling Wilma, claiming that he, Joseph, had been running around with his wife and that he was going to kill him. Joseph thought that the killer had been waiting for him and killed his wife by mistake. This didn't hold water either. Wilma Selby had turned the lights on as she went through the house. She had been shot at close range, so close, that the shooter could not possibly have mistaken her for her husband. No, the killer knew he was shooting a woman. But Selby did have a rock-solid alibi. He said that earlier in the afternoon, his wife had called and said she was downtown. They had arranged to meet outside his office at the 711 Main Building in downtown Houston after he got off work. They had met at 6 o'clock and had gone to the Colonial Club on San Jacinto Street for drinks and sandwiches. He said they talked about their nine-day-old granddaughter, and after leaving the Colonial Club in Mrs. Selby's car, they had driven to the Rice Hotel garage where his car was parked. Continuing with his story, Selby said that he had told his wife that he needed to stop at Highland Village Pharmacy to buy some deodorant, shaving lotion, and cigarettes. He would meet her at home later. The pharmacist verified that Selby had indeed stopped to buy supplies. The clerks at the pharmacy remembered him well. He had drank a cup of coffee and made a big deal of paying for his purchase by check, so he would have to show a positive identification. He wanted everyone to remember seeing him in the store. There the case sat for weeks. Nothing seemed to be happening, and all the Houston newspapers were demanding results. As they say, looks can be deceiving. From all accounts, the Selbys had been a happily married couple, and the press and the public were in total sympathy for the poor, widowed Joseph Selby. Sheriff Buster Kearns had as good a detective as I've ever seen, Johnny Red Williams. Red had informants all over Harris County, and it wasn't long before he started hearing about a man who had been trying for months to hire someone to kill his wife. Red was told he needed to talk to a black woman named Patra May Bounds. That wasn't a strange name to Red. He and Patra May went way back. Patra May was no trouble to find. She worked in a black massage parlor called the Medico Clinic in South Houston. 
She was picked up and brought to the homicide office. Of course, she denied any knowledge of the murder. The more Red questioned Patra May, the more she kept lying through her teeth. But Red was a tough, persistent interrogator who had never learned to back off, and she eventually broke down and told us the whole sorry story. Joseph Selby had been coming to the Medico Clinic where Patra May had worked for a year and a half. As he was leaving after one of his visits, he said that he needed to get rid of someone. Did she know anyone who could do it? She told him that she didn't, but she would look around. After a few weeks went by, he was back at the clinic. This time, he didn't want a treatment. He only wanted to talk. He asked if Patra May had been able to find anyone to kill someone for him. Again, she said no. However, a couple of days later, she ran into Maggie Morgan. Maggie didn't have a job, and when Patra May told her about Selby's request, Maggie told her to send Selby to her. The next day, Patra May had called Selby and given him Maggie's phone number. A few days later, Selby came into the Medico clinic and gave Patra May an envelope containing $1,600. He told her to give Maggie $750 and keep the rest until further notice. Maggie came by Patra May's that night and collected the money. Selby again called Patra May and told her to give Maggie another $250. From this point until the day or two before the crime, Patra May claimed that she saw neither Maggie or Selby. Then on the day of the murder, she was forced to go along to the Selby home with Maggie and this huge man whose name she claimed to not know. We finally had a name, Maggie Morgan, so we went before a judge and got an arrest warrant for her. With warrant in hand, Red and I headed straight for Maggie's house. We didn't want to give Maggie any chance to run, so when we got to her house, we didn't bother to knock. With a murder warrant, we were under no obligation to knock, and we didn't. The inside of her house was a real experience. Maggie was a fortune teller and a voodoo queen of sorts. She had candles of every color under the rainbow burning all over the place. Later at her trial, I guess she had a conversion. She showed up with a Bible in one hand and a crucifix around her neck. Her house was a two-story job, and when we entered, Maggie was coming down the stairs. We arrested her on the spot and went right on up the stairs, searching the house for anyone else. Sleeping in one of the beds was a huge mountain of a man, Clarence Socks Collins. I don't know if he was having a sweet dream or not, but he was getting ready to have a real bad one. We arrested him and then hauled both of them downtown to the sheriff's office. Even though Maggie would say several times that Collins was her son, he wasn't. He was a friend of her son, Perry. Under questioning, old Maggie was as tough as boot leather and resisted all our questions, but Red and I kept at her. We told her that Patra May Bounce had already rolled over on her, but Maggie still wouldn't break. She never did. Even in the grimmest situations, you'll sometimes find humor. I'll never forget that Maggie had this big hat sitting on top of her massive head of hair. The more Maggie resisted questioning, the more aggravated Red became. Suddenly, he reached over and grabbed for Maggie's hat. He not only got the hat, but he also got her hair. She had on a wig. Old Maggie was as bald as an eagle. Red looked at me with a look of utter astonishment on his face that perfectly matched mine. He looked back down at Maggie, threw the hat and wig down, and said, Just forget it. There were also a few other choice, unprintable adjectives. Then he stormed out the door. Maggie was no longer just an uncooperative suspect. She was a mad suspect. I watched as Red went through the door. When I looked back at Maggie, she was trying to stare a hole through me, never blinking an eye. She reached into her purse, it had been searched thoroughly, and pulled out a small black bottle. Opening it, she took a pinch of black powder and sprinkled it on my boots, chanting some voodoo nonsense. It took all the patience I could muster to just sit there and let her mess up my carefully polished boots. 
I worked hard to keep my boots well polished. But when she finished her chanting, I let her have it. Don't you throw your voodoo crap all over my boots. She rolled her eyes around and said, young man, you will never live to see Christmas. Well, I hate to break the news to her, but I have seen more than 40 Christmases since then and the powder still hasn't worked. Someday, I'm bound to not live to see another Christmas, so I guess you could say that sooner or later, she'll be right. There was another humorous sidebar to this story. There was a barbershop close to headquarters, and every two weeks, I would go get a haircut and my boots shined. The shoeshine man was working away on my boots, and I asked him if the voodoo powder on my boots would cause him any trouble. He jumped back as if my boots were filled with rattlesnakes and refused to finish polishing them. I left the barbershop with one boot shined and one not. Clarence Socks Collins didn't have the same backbone as Maggie. To be as big as he was, he weighed more than 300 pounds, he was spineless. With little or no prodding, he admitted to killing Wilma Selby. In fact, he laughed about it. He thought the whole thing was funny. Listening to the details of the murder was anything but funny. It had been nearly six o'clock that night when Maggie had picked up Collins and then Patrame Bounds. They cruised around while Maggie went over the details of the murder. Selby had furnished her a key to the house so they wouldn't have to break in. Their victim, Wilma Selby, should be home around 7.30 p.m. Once inside the house, they were not to turn on any lights and were to keep quiet. It was possible that Selby's son, John, might come by, but they were not to worry about it. If he did come by and saw no lights on, he would keep going. After driving by the house, the three had parked two houses down the street. As they exited the car, Maggie handed Collins a twenty-two caliber pistol. Inside the Selby home, Maggie, armed only with a flashlight, had quickly positioned Collins and Patra May Bounds. She told Patra to stand in the living room and watch for Mrs. Selby's arrival. Maggie joined Collins around the corner at the end of the hallway and told him to wait until Mrs. Selby turned on the light. He was to then simply step into the hallway and shoot her. As the three had waited, the Selby's son, John, pulled into the driveway. As the elder Selby had said, when John saw no lights on in the house, he backed out and went on his way without ever leaving his car. Shortly, the conspirators had heard another car pull into the driveway. No one said a word. Moments later, they heard the back door open and saw the kitchen light come on. Mrs. Selby entered the den and flipped on that light. Colin said he could hear Mrs. Selby walking towards the hallway. When he saw her shadow, he stepped out. Mrs. Selby had a package of some kind in her arms. This was the mink stole she had picked up from storage earlier that day. But before she had a chance to comprehend any danger, Colin shot her twice, as quickly as he could pull the trigger. He said that she dropped like a rock. Collins, followed closely by Maggie and Patra May, stepped over the body and headed for the car. Maggie had left the car's engine running and Collins climbed into the back seat and lay down so no one could see him. Maggie drove to the bus station where Collins got out of the car. He claimed that she never paid him a penny of the money she had promised him. When Collins was asked what he did with the murder weapon, all he would say was, I eat it. This went on and on and all he would ever say was, I eat it. The lab people had examined the bullets that killed Mrs. Selby and told us that the landing grooves on the bullets were not precise enough for them to swear any specific gun was the murder weapon. At best, all they could do was be reasonably certain. That would never be admitted in court, so we had to have Collins positively identify the weapon. About this time, we received a call from a foreman at the Sheffield Steel Company. He had said that he had seen Willie Morgan, Maggie's husband, hide a pistol in his locker. We just knew we were ready to put the final wrapping on this case. Wrong. 
I had believed Willie Morgan when he insisted that he knew nothing of the murder and had only taken the pistol because his wife made him. You could tell he was just an old, hardworking man who was terrified of his wife. Meanwhile, Maggie was still denying any knowledge of the murder and all Collins would say was, I eat it. Once we recovered the gun, the ballistic boys went to work on it to positively identify it as the murder weapon. In the words of the lab people, the killer got the luckiest break a killer ever got. The weapon had originally been manufactured as a starter gun that only fired blanks. It had been converted to a working pistol when a real barrel was exchanged for the fake. The only problem was that the barrel was not an exact twenty-two caliber barrel. It was slightly larger. Larger enough that each shot did not have the exact lands and grooves. Even after firing more than 1,000 rounds through the pistol, the lab people said they overwhelmingly believed that it was the murder weapon, but could not swear with total certainty that it was. When Collins and later Selby admitted to the murder, the positive identification of the weapon turned out to not be so important. Such is the frustration of police work. When Joseph Selby was arrested and his involvement became public, it created an even bigger sensation than his wife's murder. Remember, this was 1960, and race relations were quite different from today. When it was revealed that Selby was a regular visitor to the black houses of prostitution, all of the sympathy that the public had felt for him evaporated. The public was shocked and outraged, and the outrage grew as more facts came out. It seemed that Selby had a special fondness for 21-year-old Willie May Stewart. Willie May operated a massage parlor called Sue's Baths at 2905 Milam in Houston. Selby had been seeing Willie May regularly for two years. She was light-skinned and frequently crossed between the white and black worlds. Selby had often taken her to well-known restaurants in the Houston area, even to the Colonial Club, the same one where he had met Wilma on the day he ordered her murder. He had given her thousands of dollars in cash, signed notes for her at a local bank, bought her diamonds, and even signed a note for her to buy a Cadillac convertible. With their confessions, it seemed a pretty open and shut case against Selby and Collins. But then the lawyers got involved. Maggie Morgan never admitted to anything, and Patrame Bounds turned state's evidence and testified against the other three. Maggie Morgan was tried first, convicted, and received the death penalty. Then it was Selby's turn. By now, his case had generated so much publicity that it would have been nearly impossible to conduct an unbiased trial in Houston. It was not surprising when his attorneys asked for and received a change of venue to Austin. The trial was a three-ring circus from the start. It lasted for several weeks, but in the end, it didn't help Selby. He was sentenced to life in prison. Likewise, Clarence Collins received a life sentence. Patrame Bounds was given a reduced sentence since she had turned state's evidence. Collins and Selby's life sentences were life-saving verdicts for Maggie Morgan. Since her co-killers had received life imprisonment terms, her death sentence was also reduced to life imprisonment. This was a particularly satisfying case because a vicious crime was solved, and it was solved through the cooperative work of the Houston Police Department and the Harris County Sheriff's Office and the Texas Rangers. Captain Weldon Walcott of the Houston Police Department's Homicide Division summed it up best in a press release. I would like to impress that this was no one department deal in finally solving this crime. It took the equal work of the District Attorney's Office, Sheriff Kern and his office, the Police Department, and the Rangers.